Welcome to the new podcast, Not a Square Inch, sponsored by Hope Prison Ministries. And I just want to say at the outset that I hope that uh, you will be blessed by what you hear today. We're going to pick up where we left off. I'm going to talk a little bit more about 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. And then I'm going to dive right into the subject of economics from a Christian perspective. So as we get started today, um, I hope that you will enjoy today's podcast and that uh, you will be enriched by it. I want to start at the outset by saying that I am not any particular Christian scholar, don't have a master's degree, a doctorate degree, don't even have a bachelor's degree. Um, what I've been blessed with is um, when I became a Christian, when I was incarcerated 25 years ago, I was very blessed to have a tremendous amount of men pour into me by sending me books and helping me learn and grow and, and how to learn to think biblically, to think like a Christian to, as Corinthians, the passage in Corinthians says, we talked about last week, to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And, uh, of course, no one has arrived at that, no one has perfected that, or we wouldn't need a Savior. But uh, this week we're going to continue on our discussion uh, of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, and then we're going to dive right into economics from a Christian perspective with the help of uh, now-deceased Professor Tom Rose. And uh, so I hope you enjoy today's podcast. Episode 2, Not a Square Inch, the subject is economics. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. This is Not a Square Inch, the new podcast of Hope Prison Ministries. The goal is to help you see all of life through the lens of Scripture. To learn more, please visit us at notasquareinch.org. Okay, I realized when I listened to last week's podcast that I had not finished talking about second... Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. So I want to read this passage to you again. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. We called that the dirty D word last week. Doctrine for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. We talked about that not many Christians want to talk about doctrine, but that's why the Bible says that it was given is to teach us doctrine, what we should believe and that it's uh, sufficient for reproof or the subject of apologetics, how to defend what we believe, that we don't need to, just because people say they don't believe in the Bible, drop our sword, so to speak, and let them run all over us. No, instead, we should use the wisdom of God's word to show them the foolishness of their thinking apart from God. And so the Bible is sufficient for reproof or for apologetics. It's also sufficient for correction to tell us what not to do and to instruct us in righteousness what to do, or as Paul says in other places in the Scripture, to put off the old and to put on the new. Uh, I always think when we hear that passage, I think about the passage that talks about let the thief who stole steal no more. Instead, let him work that he should have to give to others. So you put off the thievery and the stealing and all the things that go with that, and you put on a good work ethic and uh, the opportunity to uh, be able to give to others instead of to be instead of being a taker the ability to give so that's a good example the bible's a, a very sufficient for us to teach us how to love god and how to love our neighbor anything that we need to know to love god and love our love our neighbor is found in god's word 
And so that's why 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 is so important, because everything that we need is in God's Word. So I had talked about the fact that the Bible is sufficient for doctrine to teach us what to believe. It's sufficient for apologetics. And as I just finished saying, it is sufficient for correction to tell us what not to do, how not to think, and what to do or how to live for instruction in righteousness. So I want to go right to the subject of economics. And if you remember when I was telling you at the beginning of this podcast, this is where it all began. I had made a post contrasting the uh, party positions of the Democrats and the Republicans, and on one side was the clear Democratic platform or positions that they take as a majority party. Now, again, I want to be very clear. There are always people who uh, are within parties that may not hold to every particular view, but when we talk about the Democratic platform, we're not talking about an individual. We're talking about the majority of the Democratic platform that has been voted on, that their voting record shows this is what they believe, this is what they think is ideal or not ideal. And so when we talk about the political platforms, it's not about an individual person. An individual person can be a part of a party. They could be a Democrat. They could be a Republican. And they may not hold to every particular view that their party espouses. But overall, if they're voting for Democrat or they're voting for Republican, they're voting for a platform. They're voting for the ideology behind that party. And so what we want to talk about today in particular is uh, the hot button that that uh, one of the people that saw the post that I had made was offended. The fact that she said, I'm a Christian and I vote Democrat. I certainly understand how you can, how why you hold the position you do on abortion. I'm personally, she said she was opposed to abortion. But she said, how can you say that what the Bible says about economics? How can you say that the Bible has anything to say about economics? How can you say that it offers a Christian perspective, that one view is Christian and the other is not? And I think what's really important to remember is that that is exactly what the Scripture is given for. It is given to teach us what to believe, how to defend what we believe, why we believe what we believe, and to help us learn how what not to do, what to do, uh, you know, for instruction in righteousness, for training in righteousness, for correction, and that's what the scripture is given for us to teach us how to live. And economics is certainly a part of that, how we manage our money, how we make choices. Those are all parts of how we live out our life every day. And they affect other people and they affect our witness before God. So the scripture is concerned with those kinds of things. And I think it's really important to note that, that the Bible is concerned about every area of our life, not a square inch over which Christ does not say mine. That's the theme of this podcast, and that's what we're going to continue to talk about. What does God's Word say about all of these different issues? And today, because economics is kind of what spurred this on, um, I'm going to begin with the subject of economics. When I was in prison 25 years ago, um, I was very blessed, like I said, to have several people just pour into my life. One of them was a tremendous man named Stephen Caselli, who was then the director of admissions at Westminster Theological Seminary. And Stephen had written me, he read an article I wrote in a magazine, and he had written me and he said, Chandler, I can't do much, but listen, whatever book you want, ask me and I'll send it to you. I don't know whether Stephen was the particular person who sent me the books that, uh, or the book in particular we're going to 
discuss today, but uh, he certainly had a definite influence in sending me a lot of Christian reading. And one of the books that I received early on, I was interested in looking. I had talked to somebody about the different things that I was learning about faith and salvation and all of those wonderful things. And somebody said to me, my mentor said to me, Roy, he said, Chandler, what you're learning is not just about salvation. It's about all of life. It's a way of interpreting all of life through the lenses of Scripture. And I said, what do you mean? And he began to introduce me to what I now know is called the Christian worldview, that the Bible, again, has something to say about all of these different things. Any subject that you can imagine that's important, uh, economics, politics, philosophy, theology, psychology, sociology, biology, on and on and on, the Bible has something to say. There are some really great organizations organizations doing some great things to help young people and train them in these areas. Certainly Summit Ministries out of Colorado uh, has been doing this for a very long time. We sent our son up to Summit Ministries, and I would strongly encourage you to consider sending your son or your daughter to Summit Ministries. Um, And there are other camps. There's a Worldview Camp organization. I can't think of the name of it, but there are lots of... We'll put some things in the podcast for those of you who really want to introduce your young people to the Christian worldview and help them to think biblically about all of life and not just, you know, yes, the gospel is great, and we go on and we get saved, but now how do we live our lives after we become Christians? What does the Bible say about just living my life every day? What kind of economic choices I make? What kind of who I'm going to marry? What music I listen to? What movies I watch? What what I entertain? What I don't entertain? All of those different things. Every area of our life, what does the Bible have to say about it? This is really what helps young people, I think, so much. And this is why I think that we're losing so many young people, because our churches, and I hate to say this, I, I actively go to church. I'm a member of a church. We go to myself, my family, our ministry. We worship at St. John's Presbyterian in Arlington, where Pastor Adrian Scott is the senior pastor. Wonderful man, conservative in the faith, conservative Christian, reformed, all of that. Great church, great people. But so many churches... Uh, are not doing what they need to do to equip young people. And I'm not saying that about our church in particular. I'm saying this about churches in general are not doing what they need to to equip young people with a firm foundation for their faith. And so when they go to college and they get inundated with so-called professors and people who are supposed to be the educated and the intelligentsia of the community, and these people have very different worldviews than what with than those with which the young people have been raised, and they're not given any tools to combat that, and they don't understand the differences, and they hear these things, and they think, oh, all this stuff that I grew up on is just a myth, um, and that the, this is the real, this is my real education, and so I don't need to believe in these things anymore, because here are the really intelligent people, and this is what they teach, and they never really learn that there are some really intelligent people throughout history who have been Christians and who believe the Bible to be the Word of God, and who not only believe the Bible to be the Word of God, but they have taken it upon themselves to be a light to those within the Christian community and to, for example, write books about what the Bible says. So, for example, Today, the book we're going to talk about is going to be by, it was written by Tom Rose, who was a former professor of economics at Grove City College. We're going to take a quick break and we'll come back and we'll continue to talk about these things. InmateMentors.com 
Help us help your loved one. We write letters, send books, accept collect calls, help those incarcerated plan and prepare for release, and create parole packages. To learn more, please visit InmateMentors.com. Okay, so I was talking about the fact that before uh, we took the break, that um, there are many churches that are not adequately doing what they should be doing to educate our young people. And I want to say, too, that this job is not just the role of the church, of course. It's also the role of parents. If you're a parent of a young person, you need to expose that young person to the Christian worldview. They need to know that there is a particular way to, that the Bible addresses these things and that there are some wonderful Christian scholars who have just as many letters behind their name as their secular opponents. There are people, there are Christians who are PhDs, who hold the highest level of education, who have held some of the highest chairs at some of the most prestigious universities in the world, and yet they are Christians and they believe the Bible to be the Word of God and they believe that the Bible speaks to all of life. So if you're a parent, Get online, send your kid to Summit Ministry, send your kid to other worldview camps, expose them to the internet, the Institute of Creation Research and uh, Genesis, Answers in Genesis, and all of these wonderful things that are out there that are Christian resources by Christian scholars who are just as educated, just as as well-studied and well-read, and yet they believe some very different things from what your kids are being exposed to in the schools, and especially the public schools that are explicitly um, not Christian. It doesn't mean that there aren't Christians who teach in the public schools. I'm certain there are. I know there are. But as a general rule, the curriculum of the public schools is going to be more and more hostile to the Christian faith. And if you don't give your children an alternative to be able to know that the Bible teaches these things and that there are wonderful Christian scholars out there who have taken the time to apply their discipline, to apply Scripture to their discipline, and to really give us some wonderful Christian things to believe, then they're never going to know, and they're going to feel unequipped, and they're going to feel threatened, and they're going to leave the Christian faith by droves, as so many already have. And I know you know what I'm talking about, so please... Uh, prayerfully get your kids involved and surrounded by godly Christian scholars and help them see that there are Christian educated alternatives out there and that we're not just all a bunch of backward, uneducated hicks. Uh, I may certainly be, but the rest of the world, uh, there's a lot of people who have the PhDs and who have all the things and they've done their, their homework. I just can't encourage you enough to do that. So Thank you for listening to that. Now, let's uh, go ahead and we'll get in. We talked about 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. We talked about how all of creation uh, is to point us to Christ. Uh, all of Scripture is to help us understand the wisdom of God and to know what to believe and how to live. And we mentioned last week about Genesis 1, 26 and 27, the creation mandate. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Now, what I want to tell you uh, in particular about... um, 
this set of passage, this passage and, and the things that we're going to discuss right now, what I want to tell you in particular is that uh, Tom Rose was a professor at Grove City College, and he wrote a book called Economics from a Christian Perspective, and it's two volumes. There's Economics from a Christian Perspective, dealing with microeconomics, personal finance and things, and then there's the Economics from a Christian perspective, the American economy dealing with macroeconomics on a much larger scale. Both of these books were written by decidedly Christian perspectives. And I remember when I, I cannot remember exactly how, again, I came into contact with these books, but they were so amazing to read. And I did actually read both of the volumes when I was uh, incarcerated. I tell people that by the time I left prison, I had a a seminary level education at taxpayer expense. So thank you for that. Um, It was a great opportunity to read and to learn and to grow. I tell people that in prison, there are basically a couple of things you can do. You can read or you can work out. And uh, all you have to do is take one look at any picture of me and you'll know which one I chose. (laughs) I wish I'd have chosen both. I should have chosen both, but I spent a lot of time reading and I was very blessed to be able to do that. And so that's where this podcast stems from, too, is I know there's a lot of stuff out there that people have never heard of. I mean, honestly, I'd been in mainstream Christianity before I went to prison, and I thought I was a Christian, and I now know I wasn't. But, uh, you know, being in mainstream Christianity, I had never heard of the Christian worldview. I did not know that there were scholars out there who were well-educated, who were professing Christians, who believed the Bible to be the Word of God, who had taken the time to study and to do their homework and to apply the scripture to their particular discipline, education discipline. And so I never knew these things existed. And I know there are many of you who may listen to this podcast and you're exactly the same. You're like Christian worldview. I've never heard that terminology before. It's really very sad that there are entire churches, denominations who you hardly would ever hear these words. Um, And so I was blessed to receive this book. And then when I got out of prison, I started a website design company out of my dorm room called checkusout.net. And Tom Rose was wonderful. Uh, When he learned about it, he said, hey, can you help us start a website? And so I set up their original website for American Enterprise Publications and and actually helped them get off the ground selling their books on the Internet. And they, of course, did other things after that. But I was very blessed to be able to do that. Also, uh, years ago, Dr. Jay Adams, who was a mentor to me through his books and even after my release, helped me a little bit. Um, We helped them, Timeless Text, set up one of their first websites e-commerce websites. That was a long time ago. and uh, But I'm so grateful to these men for supporting me after I got out of prison that they, they supported the business I had started and they gave me my first chance to do some work. And it was meaningful work. And I was grateful for that. But I, I was especially grateful for the wisdom that I learned from these men and the giants on whose shoulders I stand. I mean, Tom Rose is just an amazing man of God and left a tremendous legacy behind a faith and books and writings and articles. All you have to do is just Google Tom Rose, Christian economist, and you'll find hundreds of articles he's written online. His books are not as in print anymore. Um, I'm actually going to be trying to track down some of his family and see what's going on with that, if they're just selling out of what they have or if they're ever going to reprint his books again. But if you're listening to this podcast and you know Tom Rose or his family, uh, I would love for you to try to put them in touch with us. And I'm going to keep trying to find them as well. But I did find one website, and it'll be in the podcast where you could get this particular book that we're going to talk about today, 
uh, Economics from a Christian Perspective by Tom Rose and the microeconomics version. So we're going to talk about that, but you're also going to be able to go online and you're going to be able to buy that book if that's what you want to do. And we're going to have those things every time we talk about a book or every time we, uh, especially if it's a significant book or if we're doing a lot of reading from it or quoting from it, we're going to be sure to put those things on the podcast website. So be sure to visit www.notasquareinch.org. Hopeafterprison.com. We help locate transitional housing for those being released from prison, regardless of their crime. And when permitted, we connect those being released with one or more mentors from the local church. To learn more, please visit HopeAfterPrison.com. Okay, welcome back. Wow. You know, I've started this. We've been doing this for 20 minutes now, and I haven't even started on the material that I have from Tom Rose. But I'm going to go ahead and open up this book right now. And again, from the very, uh, from the very, on the very cover of the book, it's a green book, and it says Economics, Principles, and Policy from a Christian Perspective by Tom Rose. And I'm reading from the second edition. Now, I don't know if they came out with another edition, but I'm reading from the second edition. And I'm not going to, you know, we could get into this, and I mean, it would be incredible. Just listen to this table of contents. In the introduction, what is economics? Man is rational, the scientific method, the social sciences, the two aspects of economics. Uh, Chapter 2, the nature of man and other assumptions. Uh, Chapter 3, the Bible and economics. Chapter 4, The Relationship Between Economics and Political Science. Chapter 5, Basic Economics. Chapter 6, More Basic Concepts. Chapter 7, The Distribution of Income. Chapter 8, The Market System. Chapter 9, Demand, Supply, and Prices. Chapter 10, Business Organization. Chapter 11, The Theory of the Business Firm. Chapter 12, Market Structures and Business Firm. So you can see that this is a very powerful uh, book that it covers a tremendous amount of material. And I could probably spend literally weeks of this podcast, but that's not what we're going to do. What I want to do, I was thinking about this more and more. I don't want to spend just weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks on a particular book because I think it'll get old very fast. But what I want to do is just give you a primer and a recommendation uh, that you will consider going out and acquiring this book yourself or acquiring something like it so that you can educate yourself and learn how to think biblically from a Christian perspective so that not a square inch of your life, uh, that you will be conscious about the fact that not a square inch of your life is one over which Christ does not declare it to be his. So in the forward to the book, Economics from a Christian Perspective, this was written by Roger Moorfield, who was an assistant or maybe still an assistant professor of economics at Houston Baptist University. And one of the couple of things that I highlighted from here, he says, Christian education must somehow mirror the gospel message of Jesus Christ as it, imply, as it applies to the entirety of life individually and collectively. Economics amply demonstrates how the proper application of the doctrines of creation and the fall of man affects economic science. So I think that those are really good words that, that right away, you know, we have to, everything's about bringing everything every thought captive into the obedience of Christ and learning how to think biblically. So right at the preface 
Tom Rose began. And I thought this was very, very profound and very appropriate. He said that economics is both a science and an art. It can be regarded as a true science when the economist deals solely with matters that fall properly within the scope of positive economics. Positive economics are defined, and this is me talking now, positive economics are defined as matters that have to do with the accurate observation of empirical data and seeking the reality via the scientific method of inquiry. Now, this is really important because when I first read that, I thought, wow, these two distinctions that he makes, positive economics and then normative economics, let me get into that. When the economist, though, reaches the point where he attempts to interpret discovered cause and effect patterns and to apply his scientifically acquired knowledge in the formation of policy recommendations, then economics becomes more than pure science. At this stage, economics, in addition to being a science, becomes an art. And when the economist attempts to develop policy, and this is where most decisions are made, he moves away from the area of positive economics, that is just the observations of fact and interpretation of raw data, and into the area known as normative economics. That is, he begins dealing with matters that involve value judgments, concepts of moral right and wrong. It is at this stage that spiritual insight enjoyed by the Christians becomes especially helpful. So he makes a distinction here between two types of economics, nor, uh, positive economics, which simply has to deal with studying raw data and observation using the, the scientific method. And some of you may remember the scientific method. You know, you begin with just an idea. Uh, it becomes a hypothesis. Then it progresses to a theory. Then it progresses to a law and so on. So the scientific method that you have. But he says once, you know, there's positive economics where you're just looking at scientific data and you're using the scientific method and you're making observations that are simply based on fact and fact alone. But there's a distinct difference between that and normative, what he's calling normative economics, where you then take that data and you try to interpret and apply it and you make policy from it. That's when it becomes very, very subjective, and also it's called normative economics. Now, when I read this, I immediately thought, wow, it seems to me like these terms could be applied to just about every branch of science. And so I immediately Googled it, and sure enough, these terms are frequently applied to other branches of science, certainly philosophy and other subjects, logic and other things that are out there. You have what is known as positive uh, a positive branch of a discipline, which is simply dealing with data and facts alone. And then you have the normative branch, which actually deals with interpreting the data and coming up with policy and making application of what you know. And I can't help but think about in the scripture, I've heard it said that wisdom is uh, knowledge is knowing something, but wisdom is knowing how to apply what you know. So the difference between somebody who just knows something, but somebody who has wisdom is that the person who may just know something may know a set of facts, but they really don't know how to flesh those out. They don't know how to live those out. They can't really draw applications or make applications from those things because they're not really wise. They just have a head full of facts. And some of you may know somebody like this. But then real wisdom is actually being able to take what you know 
and apply it to your life or to the lives of others or to the particular subject you're studying. So this is the difference between positive and normative economics. And Tom Rose even goes on to say that when you're dealing with positive economics in particular, that even looking at the raw data, whether you're a believer or not a believer, Christian or not a Christian, it's going to make a difference even in how you interpret the raw data because people have biases. People have biases. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 22 through 24, Jesus Christ was talking about the presuppositions around which we orient our lives. And he says, hey, you're either going to love God or love money, but you can't do both. He says, if the light that is in you is good, how great is the light? But if the darkness, if, if the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? And right away, what he's saying is, if the things that you believe are bad from the start, then you're pretty much your whole life and everything you believe and everything you do is going to come from that fountain of darkness. It's going to be messed up. But if the light that is in you is good, if the way that you make decisions, if the way that you look at the world, if the facts that you know, if those things are good, then your whole life is going to be full of light and you're going to make wise decisions. And so that's what this is all about. Tom Rose is saying, hey, look, you can have this pot, you can have this branch of economics and there's going to be some agreement between myself and an unbeliever for sure. But there's also going to be some disagreement. And then when you get a normative economics and you start talking about drawing inferences and applications and making policy based on what you think you knew from positive economics, then there's going to be some real telltale differences between the conclusions that a Christian draws and a non-Christian draws. I remember when I was in a class in college, and I'm not going to go into the class because I don't want anybody looking things up and trying to figure out, you know, who the professor was and whatever. I don't want to get into all that. But I remember I was in one particular college class, and um, this professor began the class by saying who or what uh, is the source of our rights. And several people had raised their hand, and he said, Okay, what are your answers? And they gave their answers. And then he said, popular sovereignty. We, the people, we are the source of rights. And I raised my hand and he said, yes. And he said, um, yeah. So I said, that document to which you refer the Bill of Rights says that these are inalienable rights given to us by our creator. And I said, that means the people who wrote that document believe that the source of rights was God, not man. We are not the source of our rights. We merely affirm what God has already declared. And he became very angry, and I ended, I ended up leaving the class. And several students who were professing Christians came out after me and said they couldn't believe that somebody had said that to the professor, and they were, like, so amazed. And so they started really learning how to think about their faith from a biblical perspective and not to realize that not everything that's going to be taught in the classroom is going to necessarily be fact just because there's a person up there who says they're educated and is teaching it. I had another likewise class, and uh, there was another professor, and he had mentioned dinosaurs. And he quickly looked at me when he mentioned the dinosaurs, and he said, uh, and afterward I asked him at the class, I said, why did you look at me when you mentioned the dinosaurs? And he said, well, Chandler, I actually, my wife is a Christian, and 
she believes that dinosaurs are a conspiracy by the scientific community to make us believe in evolution. And I said, no offense, but your wife is practicing what I call airhead theology. <laughs> and he laughed. And I said, no, look, Christians believe in dinosaurs. We may not believe exactly the same things you do. I happen to believe that they didn't necessarily exist billions of years ago. And I said, but uh, I, you know, I don't know. And I even believe that there might be some evidence in the fossil record that they coexisted with man and that they weren't separated by billions and billions of years and all these things. And I said, but that doesn't mean that we don't believe in dinosaurs. Of course we do. That's ridiculous. There's evidence and we believe in dinosaurs. And he was just blown away. He says, oh my gosh, I met a Christian who also believes in dinosaurs. That's incredible. I'm going to go home and tell my wife I met a Christian who believes the Bible and believes in dinosaurs. And I said, of course. And I began to give him books to read to see that there were Christians out there who are wonderfully educated science, men of science, men of God, who look at the data and come to totally different conclusions. They look at the positive data that the scientific community has come up with that is truly based on fact and observation, but they draw totally different conclusions because whereas we begin with the Bible, they begin with themselves. And that's part of what Tom Rose in this uh, preface goes on to say. Actually, he quotes from Benjamin Warfield in one section, and then, uh, but in another section, he says, Tom Rose says, the most popular religion of our day is humanism, as contrasted with Christianity. The humanist regards man as the apex of the evolutionary process and has taken place through the eons of time, which, of course, is a religious supposition in itself. He may scoff at any attempt to view the science of economics through a Christian eyes as unscientific, through a Christian's eyes as unscientific. The Christian, on the other hand, can only ask, what did the Apostle Paul mean when he, speaking of Christ, said, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge? Does not this also include all knowledge, the world of science, as well as everything else? And Tom Rose says this book, Economics from a Christian Perspective, holds that it does. That all the hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge, even those of the sciences, can be sought most successfully and profitably only if the seeker constantly keeps his eyes focused on the person of Jesus Christ. If all that we regard as knowledge is not continually tested against the immovable benchmark, Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, the seeker of truth may very likely come up with only a pseudoscience, which leads him away from the reality instead of toward it. The admonition of the Apostle Paul is worthy of being heeded in this respect. They received not the love of truth, that they might be saved. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. And he quotes from C.H. McIntosh uh, in 1882, concerning the divergent tendencies between believers in Christ and non-believers, C.H. McIntosh said, He, the non-believer, measures everything by his own standard and rejects whatever he cannot reconcile with his own nations. He lays down with marvelous coolness his own premises and then proceeds to draw his own conclusions. But if the premises are false, the conclusions must be false also. On the other hand, the humble believer starts with the great first principle, that God is. And not only that he is, but that he has to do with his creatures, that he interests himself and occupies himself about the affairs of men.
That was C.H. McIntosh from Notes on Numbers, uh, which was published in 1972. McIntosh warns, Our young people must be solemnly warned as to this, that they, be t- they must be taught the immense difference between the facts of science and the conclusions of scientific man. They must be taught the difference between the facts of science and the conclusions of scientific men. I remember when I was looking at this debate that's been going on for a long time within Christianity called the age of the earth debate. You know, there are people who are young creationists and they hold that the world was created, you know, six to 10,000 or maybe 10 to 15,000 years ago. Anyway, they're young earth people. And then you have the evolutionists who of course believe that the world's been around billions of years. And some of them profess to be Christians, but they look at their own data and they come to these conclusions and there's another uh, section in this forward, actually, where um, Burkhoff, is it, let's see, is it Burkhoff? Yeah, Louis Burkhoff, writing some years later, made specific reference to the area of science when he wrote, The science of geology is not only young, but it is still in bondage to the speculative. It cannot be considered as indicative science, inductive science, is since it is largely the fruit of a priori or deductive reasoning. When the attempt to determine the age of the various strata or rocks by their mineral or mechanical makeup failed, geologists began to make fossils the determining factor. It is simply assumed that certain fossils are older than others, and if the question is asked on what basis the assumption rests, the answer is that they are found in older rocks. This is just plain reasoning in a circle. A circle. The age of the rocks is determined by the fossils which they contain, and the age of the fossils by the rocks in which they are found. Now it is perfectly evident that naturalistic evolution certainly does not conflict with the biblical account. Scripture pictures man as standing on the highest plane at the beginning of his career and then descending to lower levels by the deteriorating influence of sin. And that was Lewis Burkhoff from Systematic Theology, published by Erdman's in 1974. What I want you to see from all of this is that There's a difference between just looking at facts and then drawing interpretations and conclusions from those facts. And getting back to the whole young earth, old earth debate, I remember my mentor, I was talking to him about these different things, and he said, Chandler, my degree is in physics, and his training had been as a mechanical engineer. So this guy loved math and science. He loved math and science to the point that it made me almost physically sick because I tell everybody I was fine with math until they threw the alphabet in with it and then I'm out of there. Math has never been a favorite subject of mine. I chose my major in college around math. I just, I'm not a fan, but he loves math. And he said, I don't want you to see how, I don't want you to enjoy doing math. I just want you to see how beautiful it is, how it orders all of God's creation. And I was like, dude, they let you out too soon. (laughs) I just, I've never been a huge fan of math and the sciences, but he was. And so he told me, he said, Chandler, I've looked at the evidence. I'm a scientist. And he said, here's the bottom line. You're sitting with Adam one day after creation. How old is he? I was like, I don't know. He said, well, Most scholars, you know, of course, his age isn't given, but most scholars believe that God created Adam and Eve probably in their late teens, early 20s, uh, just because of their reasoning and the abilities that they had. Obviously, they weren't born as babies. They actually were 
were made as adults, so to speak, or late teenagers, uh, early adults. And so, you know, based on their abilities and their reasoning and all of those things, they were obviously created much older, but they had just been created the day before. Now, when Jesus first came into, uh, when, it, when his first miracle was turning water into wine, and the wedding person said that the wine was the best, that it tasted the best, what makes wine taste the best? Age. So from these two things, right away you learn that God has the ability to create with the appearance of age. He has the ability to create with the appearance of age. So it doesn't matter whether he created the world 10 million years ago, well, then the age is going to be there, or created it 10,000 years ago, the age is going to be there. Whatever he wants to do, he does it. He's God. We're not. There are some things that we're never going to know the answer to because it cannot be tested. I remember when I was sitting in one of the classes with the professor, and he said, uh, what is a paradigm? And then he went on to explain that a paradigm is a theory that's important to a particular discipline. And he said, as evolution is a theory that explains biology, the source of life. And I raised my hand and he said, yes. And I said, um, are we still using that scientific method I learned in high school about hypothesis and theory and law and those things? And he said, oh, yeah, absolutely. And I said, oh, okay. Well, then evolution can't really be called a scientific law or a paradigm that explains biology. And he said, well, why would you say that? And I said, because it can never be really tested. I wasn't there. I don't know what happened. You don't know what happened. We can't test it. So therefore, it can never really truly be progressively called a law. And he said, I guess I hadn't thought about that. But now that I think about it, you're right. It is really a hypothesis. It's one way of explaining what happened. And I said, but it's one way of explaining it that, of course, is contrary to God's word. And so between the two, I'm going to choose God's word. And that is that is my explanation. You know, I look at the, the Christians who are scientists, not me. <laughs> they look at the data. They see what's out there. And they still come to the conclusion that God's word is true. But then you have non-Christians and people who are really anti-Christian. You know, years ago, you could just be an atheist. But now we have a much more hostile version of that, where they actually call themselves anti-theists, where they're not just, you know, saying, I don't believe in God. Now they're saying, I don't believe in God, and it's wrong for you to believe in God. They're haters of God. So I just want you to be aware of this and think about this. This podcast has gone over much longer. We're going to pick up next week, and we're actually going to talk more about economics. Today we just talked about the differences between positive and normative economics, and we're going to. But next week we're going to get into some other policy and application. Hey, thank you for joining us this week. Have a great week. Thank you for listening to Not a Square Inch, the podcast of Hope Prison Ministries. Join us next time to learn more please visit us at notasquareinch.org.